Well, good morning, South Winds. It's so good to see everybody this uh, first Sunday after Easter. We're glad you're here, and I hope that you've had a great start uh, to your day so far. I did want to share with you before we jump in uh, that uh, last Sunday on Easter, we had 2,045 people that uh, gathered here to worship with us, and uh, I, we're really excited about all of the new friends that we had a chance to make contact with, and I would really encourage you, if you're part of the Southwinds family, you would pray that God would enable us to... Uh, to take those uh, first uh, connections farther and be able to share the gospel and serve and help and minister in any way uh, that we can. Uh, Before we get into our study in the book of Acts, I do want to remind you of a couple of things that are coming up really uh, really soon here in the month of April. Two weeks from today, uh, we're going to have our our next discovery class, Discovery 101. And this is for uh, anyone who's just checking Southwinds out. You want to know more about what we believe and and how we, we, we practice uh, our beliefs. Uh, maybe you're ready to become a member uh, of the church family here. This is for you as well. Uh, you can sign up today on your Connect card. You can do it online. And if you have questions, please uh, uh, feel free to talk to me, any of our pastors. I would uh, love to have the opportunity to meet with you if I haven't done that already. And then the next Sunday, three weeks from today, we're going to be having our next baptism. And Jesus says, of course, in the New Testament that Baptism is the very first step of obedience after you've trusted uh, in him for salvation. And it may be that you've made that commitment to Jesus with your life, but you haven't uh, made that step of public profession of faith through baptism. And so we want to offer this opportunity uh, for you. And you may have questions. If you do, please uh, feel free uh, to talk to me, any of our pastors. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, you can sign up on your Connect card for this as well, or you can do that online. So just want to make sure you're aware of those things uh, as we uh, begin today. Well, if you haven't gotten your Bible open to the book of Acts, go ahead and do that. Uh, get your device open, your, de- your screen, uh, whatever it is, and uh, turn to Acts 15. And you're going to see today that Acts 15 really tells a fascinating story. Um, I've called today's message, How to Have a Good Church Fight. And some of us may react to that. Now, you may be thinking right now, is there really any possibility that any church fight could be good? And then there's some others of you, you would like to know if there's a video online somewhere. Uh, Well, I hope that after our study today, uh, that we will all see that there are times when Christ followers do need to fight. But when we do, we need to make sure that we're fighting in the right way. Acts 15 Uh, is a chapter that stands right at the very heart and center of Luke's story. And it's not just because it's halfway through his narrative. It is also at the very center of Luke's message, the message he's trying to communicate. Uh, If you'll remember where we've been, the first half of the book of Acts has uh, focused largely on the Jewish Christian community, especially in Jerusalem. In Acts 1 through 5, we, we see the church born and taking its first steps in Jerusalem But it's kind of an interesting thing that you don't maybe notice at first. Uh, It seems like these early Jewish believers don't fully grasp the mission that Jesus gave to his church in the beginning in Acts 1.8. You remember that verse? Uh, Jesus said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And as you read through Acts and you get a little farther on, it's not like... It's like they're not quite getting this, and you get to Acts 6 and through Acts 9, and 
we see that they do begin to scatter finally, but it's only because persecution comes against them and forces them out of Jerusalem. Uh, We get into Acts 10 and 11, and we see some Jewish believers sharing the gospel uh, with Gentiles, but then other Jewish believers are having some reservations about this. And then in Acts 13 and 14, which we studied right before Easter, uh, we, we saw that it, <clears throat> it is not the mother church in Jerusalem, but it is the newer Antioch church. It's this church set in Gentile territory. That church is the one that seems to fully grasp what Jesus had called his followers to do. And it's the Antioch church that sends Paul and Barnabas out on the very first missionary journey, taking the gospel where it had never been heard before. Well, what happens in Acts 15 is these differences that are sort of simmering below the surface. They, they come up to the surface and they come to a head. And this continued influx, more and more Gentiles into the church of Jesus, starts to really unsettle some of the Jewish believers. It turns out the church needs a good fight to get the mission back on track and keep it there. Now, I know, and I think we all recognize, conflict is not usually a good thing. But we need to know without what we see in Acts 15, the entire mission of Jesus' church could have been derailed. And and so I can say clearly what needed to happen happens here. The global mission of Jesus' church, it gets settled. And and for the rest of the book of Acts, Luke is going to focus on taking the gospel to the very ends of the earth And we're also going to notice that the Jerusalem church kind of fades into the background. Acts 15 is also important for another reason. Uh, What happens in this chapter uh, shows us what really distinguishes Christianity from every other religion. Because every other religion says do. you got to do things. Do these five pillars. Uh, Do your dharma duties so you can eventually reach nirvana. Support the causes that 21st century secular faith demands. you got to prove that you're a good person by what you do somehow. you just got to do. But Christianity says done. Jesus has done everything necessary for our salvation. We receive the gift of salvation by faith. It is grace alone that saves. And we can never do enough good things to make ourselves acceptable to God. Amen. I was thinking this week uh, about how this is actually a great message for someone to hear today who's not a Christ follower. And you may not think this at first, especially when you hear my title. But if you are here and if you are exploring what Christianity is about, this is actually a great week for you to be here. Because there are a lot of people and they object to Christianity because they think it's a religion about rules, a religion about external behaviors. And what we're actually going to see in this chapter is that true Christianity is all about grace. Jesus did not come to put chains on you, friend. He came to take chains off. He came to set you free with his grace, with his love, with his mercy. And we're going to see that today. Now, there are a couple of uh, kind of overarching truths that I want you to be aware of as we dive in. And I'm going to put them on the screen. In Acts 15, we see, first of all, religious rituals or works cannot save us. But we're also going to see that Christ's followers must be gracious to each other when we disagree. So with that in mind, let me, let me show you three principles Uh, for having a good church fight. And I know some of you are super excited about the fight part of this. 
here's the first one. Write it down in your message notes. Make sure uh, you're only fighting about the essentials, about the essentials. Now, let me set the context for us, remind us where we are. Paul and Barnabas, they have been back in Antioch uh, after the first missionary journey, probably for close to a year. And they're just continuing to do the work, continuing to reach their city, continuing to share the gospel uh, with the Gentiles who lived there. At the end of uh, Acts 14, uh, Luke had written that God had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And that's what's going on. Many Gentiles are continuing to become Christ's followers. Paul and Barnabas in the Antioch church, they're doing what God has called them to do. And in the midst of this, as Luke writes in verse 1 of chapter 15, here's what happens. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch. And we're teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. So what's this about? What is happening here? Well, there are some Jewish believers who evidently uh, don't like where Paul's Gentile mission is headed. Now, I want to be clear about what's going on here. They were happy that Gentiles were coming to faith in Jesus, but they were unhappy that these Gentiles were retaining their own identity as they identified with Jesus. See, they thought that Gentiles needed to become Jews first in order to be saved. And they mentioned the ceremony of circumcision, but it's really more than that. In this case, circumcision stands for the entire law. What they're really saying is that Gentiles are welcome to come, but they need to become Jews first. They need to keep the law first. Now, whenever we're studying something like this where we see different points of view, it's important for us to try to give people like this, the benefit of the doubt. And I think we should do that. You need to understand this was a natural way for them to think. Just consider this. Jesus was Jewish. All of the early believers, first Christians, were Jewish. The old covenant people were Jewish. The scriptures that they read from, the scriptures that prophesied the Christian movement were Jewish scriptures. In the Old Testament, you can read this. It's all over the Old Testament. Uh, Jews had always demanded that Gentile converts, people who wanted to come into the the family of faith in God, uh, of the Jewish people, they always had to be circumcised. They always had to commit to adhere to the laws of Torah in order to be accepted. This had always been the way that it was. So it was natural for them to think this way. But what they failed to realize was that Jesus had come, and Jesus always changes everything. I was thinking about it. If these men had had their way, it really, really would have altered the character of those early new member classes because they would have primarily, I think, consisted of women and children. You know, the women would have all gone to Discovery 101, and the guys would have dropped them off and said, I'm going to stay in the car, honey. I think I need to think about this church membership thing again. Now look at verse 2. It says, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. Paul and Barnabas, you must not miss this respond very strongly to this teaching. Notice some words that are used here. The word, one word translated sharp dispute, it's a word that means to engage in intense and emotional expressions of opinion. Do you ever have expressions of opinion at your house that are intense and emotional? Um, This word that's translated sharp dispute, there's some other places in the New Testament it's actually translated riot. 
And so you kind of get the idea of what is contained in this word. Uh, Then that word translated debate, that means to express forceful differences of opinion. In other words, put this together, there is a lot of heat and a lot of volume here. I'm quite confident in saying that most of us, if we had been in that room, would have been very uncomfortable. They were arguing. They were debating. They were disputing. And they go round and round, but they don't get it resolved. And so eventually, they decide to visit headquarters. Now, there are probably some of you right now who are wondering, I don't get it. How could they argue and fight like this? Isn't this wrong? Isn't this sin? I mean, the very fact that they're disagreeing. And I want to tell you that that is a very modern, very 21st century, very American take on this. And it's also very, very wrong. Now, part of why we know this is how far Barnabas and Paul are willing to travel to get it resolved. This is how important it was to them. They are willing to take a 250-mile walk. You know, some of us haven't walked 250 miles in our life, you know, (laughs) and they're willing to go that far just to take care of this. And in addition to this, think about this. This happens right in the middle of Paul's ridiculously successful missionary and writing career. I mean, think about it. Isn't Paul a very successful person? He's, he's establishing churches and he's writing books that we are still studying 2,000 years later. Would you agree that by definition, if millions of people are talking about what you wrote 2,000 years ago, after, you know, 2,000 years after you wrote it, you're a success, right? See, why didn't Paul say, I'm too busy I'm too important to leave this work and go to Jerusalem and have a theological debate. Why did Paul not say, I don't have time for doctrine. I'm changing the world. You know, there are people today, I've heard people say the exact opposite of that. We shouldn't get bogged down in doctrinal disputes. We just got to change the world. And here's the thing. If your doctrine is not right, it doesn't matter what you do. You're not going to change the world, at least not in any way that matters. See, Paul knows how important it is for theology to be accurate, how crucial it is to make sure the gospel is accurately understood and taught. Paul knows eternity is on the line. See, our culture, the culture we live in today, doesn't believe in truth. Most of the people you live with and work with do not really actually believe that there is such a thing as truth, absolute truth, that certain things are right and certain things are wrong. And in the absence of truth, what our culture has done is we have elevated how we feel to the level of truth. We, we think that what matters is how we feel, what experiences our experiences are. But this tells us truth matters, and we should take it seriously. Look at verses 3 through 5. It says, The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the brothers very glad. And on their way, Paul and Barnabas do what they always seem to be doing. They tell other people uh, what God is doing. They like to share that. Uh, One version uh, translates right here this phrase. It says, they shared and they created great joy among the brothers. I want you to notice the contrast here. Some people hear what God is doing and they rejoice. Other people get angry. And it gives us a question that we should all wrestle with. How do we respond when we hear about people who are not like us coming to faith in Christ? 
They don't look like us. They don't dress like us. They don't think like us. Do we rejoice or do we criticize? Verse 4 says, When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. So they make this 250-mile journey They are welcomed by the church, welcomed by the leaders. They start sharing what God has done with them. But it doesn't take long for some of the believers in Jerusalem to stand up and make this claim again. And it's a clear claim. I hope you don't pass by it. They are saying, without equivocation, for Gentiles to become Christ followers, they must become Jewish first. Now, This is an essential thing, and that's why I wanted to point it out. This is at the heart of the faith. Before we move on to the next thing, I want to point out two questions that we should consider and talk about them briefly. The first question is, when is it okay to fight? See, we need to understand the answer to that question. And unfortunately, in the church, we tend to have two groups of people. There are some people, they want to fight about everything. Anybody know someone like that? I mean, they're always fighting about this doctrinal point or this ministry style or that kind of music or how pastors should preach. Some people write me emails and letters about that sometimes, about how people ought to dress. I mean, the list could just go on and on and on. People always want to fight. But then on the other side, there are some people, and this is due mainly to the cultural emphasis on tolerance. There are some people in the church who think that the only thing we can ever do that is wrong is to tell someone else they're wrong. We're not supposed to ever do that. And I, I, I see this sort of thing like on Facebook all the time. Believers who completely misunderstand what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 7 when he says, do not judge. And they think we're, we're never to have an opinion about right or wrong because of what Jesus has said there. Do you understand the Bible in other places commands us to judge? There are times we are to judge. 1 Corinthians 5 is just one example. We are to make judgments about what is right or wrong. Jesus' point is how we judge, what our heart is, what our attitude is. And so we have people who, some of them always want to fight. We have some who don't want to ever take a stand on anything. And we're seeing in this chapter, we need to find a place to stand in the middle. We need to learn how to take a stand and do it in the right way. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, here is some guidance. Whenever the gospel is at stake, we need to take a stand. Whenever God's grace is at stake, We need to take a stand. The closer the issue is to the heart of the faith, the more we need to take a stand. So issues about the the character and person of God, about the Trinity, these are issues that we need to contend for. Uh, the, The truthfulness of Scripture, who Jesus is, how salvation comes to people, these kinds of things, the closer an issue is to the heart of the gospel, the more willing we must be to stand for truth. And I want to I want to share with you two reasons that you may not have thought about. When you stand for truth in the right way, you are fulfilling the most important commands according to Jesus. Do you understand? We stand for truth because we love God. Doctrine is always saying something about God, and we love God when we're saying the right things, when we're worshiping him in spirit and truth. And so part of loving God is getting our doctrine right. But then second, we stand for truth because we love our neighbor. And we care for people 
when we help them to understand who God is and what the Bible teaches in the right way. So we must always stand for truth, but in doing that, we must always dispute and debate with the right heart. We, we must argue and fight in the right way. Second question to consider, and this is a little more complex, I think, but it's important for us to think about. Are we adding anything to the gospel? Are there any ways in our lives that we end up kind of implying that something other than the gospel makes one acceptable to God? See, what rules and what behaviors do you find yourself thinking like this? You find yourself thinking something along the lines of, well, if they really were Christians, then they would. And whatever you put after that could be something you're adding to the gospel. See, here's another way of saying it. If you ever find yourself thinking, well, a real Christian would, again, whatever you put after that may be something you're adding to the gospel. And so we need to, to be aware of any ways that we find ourselves thinking there are some things we need to add to Jesus because we can end up, without realizing it sometimes, having a Jesus plus something gospel Jesus plus baptism, Jesus plus church attendance, Jesus plus quiet time, whatever it is. You see, whenever we add anything to the gospel, we lose the gospel. Gospel math works like this. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And and we just need to be aware that grace alone is always in danger. And the primary source of that danger, hear this, is us, Christians. Uh, Luther once said, uh, Luther the great reformer, that our, our hearts, and he used the Latin, our hearts are in curvatus se, and that being translated means our hearts are curved in on themselves. Uh, a more modern way of saying it would be this. Uh, the default mode of the human heart is works-based righteousness. Do you understand that about your heart apart from God. The way your heart works, the way you will go apart from God's grace is you will try to find ways to justify yourself, to make yourself right before God. That's just how we are in our fallenness. Someone said it's kind of like a car uh, that has wheels that are severely out of alignment. Anybody have a car and you really do need to take it to the shop because your wheels are out of alignment? I mean, you know how that is. You're driving that car and it just keeps pulling. You have to keep it, you know, hold on to it tight to keep it straight because as soon as you let go, it's going that way or it's going this way because that's its alignment. Well, our hearts are aligned because of their fallenness, because of their sin, because of their brokenness, are aligned to have this desire to earn, to somehow put God in our debt, to somehow do something where we can stake a claim and say, I earned that, I did that, God owes me. This is what the Bible teaches our hearts are like, and we need to be aware of that. Are we adding anything to the gospel? When we see that, we must fight it. Here's the second uh, truth that we need to understand about having a good church fight. Uh, Resolve conflict on the basis of God's word. Verse 6 says, The apostles and elders met to consider this question, so they call a meeting. And and then all the way through verse 21, we're going to see what happens at that meeting. And I just want you to notice before we get into it, they are not going to resolve this issue by a new word of revelation from a prophet. They are going to resolve this issue through careful reasoning. 
based on the teaching of God's word. And that just tells us a good church fight must always be fought by continually going back, back into God's word. Now, Luke records in these verses three speeches, and each one of these speeches defends the gospel of grace. And the first speech is given by Peter. Peter steps up first. Anybody surprised by that? You know, Peter is always in the front. And the interesting thing is is that this is going to be Peter's final appearance in the book of Acts. And it's a pretty amazing way to go out. Look what he says in verse 7. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now, Peter actually kind of preaches a brief three-point sermon here. Here's what he says, point one. I shared the gospel with Gentile Christians. So if Paul and Barnabas are on the hot seat, I'm there too. And he says to these people, he says, here's why I did this. Here's why I did something I didn't think I would ever do. God told me to do it. In fact, God had told me to do it twice. I didn't want to do it. God made it absolutely clear that it was time for the gospel to go out beyond the Jews, to go to the Gentiles, to go to the nations. That's point one. Point two, Peter says, and when this happened, God gave Cornelius and his household the Holy Spirit. And he says, I want to tell you people, there was no difference between what happened to them in that house than what happened to us on the day of Pentecost. Just like God did to us, he gave the same spirit to them. Point three, God cleansed their hearts by faith, not by works, not by the law. Now look where he goes next, verses 10 and 11. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. I love that he goes here. Uh, Peter has never heard of Dr. Phil, but he does a Dr. Phil here. He says, guys, While we're talking about keeping the Mosaic law, how's that working out for you? How's the you shall not covet thing going, I don't know, like just this last week? How you doing? He's really saying to them, come on, people, get real. Neither we nor our fathers could keep the law of God. Just look in the mirror, he says to them. You haven't kept this law a day in your life. And yet you're going to hold it over these brand new Gentile believers. Peter says, no, salvation is by the grace of Jesus. The law doesn't save. Circumcision doesn't save. Only Jesus saves. And he saves Jews through grace, and he saves Gentiles through grace. And then he's finished, and he sits down. We would say today, he drops the mic. And then Paul and Barnabas stand up, they pick up the mic, and they tell their story. It's in verse 12. It says, The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. And what they're simply doing is this. They're saying, people, listen, God attested to this gospel that we are arguing over right now with miracles. In other words, God demonstrated that we were doing what he wanted us to do. 
He put his stamp of approval on our mission to the Gentiles by giving his grace. There were miracles. There were signs and wonders. And then they dropped the mic. Now this next speech, the third speech, this is the moment everybody was waiting for. Paul and Barnabas sit down. James stands up. And you can kind of imagine maybe that a smile starts spreading across the faces of these men from Judea because they're probably thinking, yes, this is our time. Now James is the the leader of the Jerusalem church. He's going to stand up and he's going to fight for us. He's going to fight for holiness. But look what he says. Verse 13. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the apostles are in agreement with this as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it that the remnant of men may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things that have been known for ages." What's James saying? He, he expresses his thoughts in a way that I think probably doesn't immediately connect with the way we think. But let me, let me tell you what he's doing. He's simply saying that the Old Testament prophecies show, and they've always shown, that the inclusion of the Gentiles is not an afterthought. It is not plan B. The gospel was always supposed to go to the nations. He wanted to appeal to these Jewish believers. They they were steeped in Old Testament prophecy. And part of that would have meant that they would have been longing for the day when David's fallen tent was rebuilt as this prophecy from Amos speaks. Why? They would have looked around as Jewish believers and they would have said, we still have the temple, we still have the promises of God, but we don't have a throne. We haven't had a king on David's throne for a thousand years And didn't God promise that that throne would never be vacant? James is appealing to that thinking. He is connecting the vacancy of that throne to the resurrection of a king in David's line, Jesus Christ. He is telling them and us that David's greater son has mounted the throne. He's on the throne of the kingdom. And from that throne, he is calling the nations to himself. He is summoning all peoples, Jews and Gentiles, to himself. That's us. That's why we've been able to come. He's called us. And so James says, what should we do? What's our next move? He just asked them, well, why was that throne reestablished? See, it's there in verse 17. It says that the remnant of men may seek the Lord and that all the Gentiles who bear my name. What he's saying is that this ingathering of the nations is proof positive that Jesus is on David's throne and that he is calling the nations, the Gentiles, to find salvation in him. James is just saying, friends, we had better not stand in their way when they come running for Jesus. He's saying, get out of their way. They're running to the Savior. Don't get in their way. He gives this conclusion, verses 19 through 21. He starts by saying, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles are turning to God. I'm going to stop right there for a moment. Do you understand that this is one of the cornerstone principles for how we want to do church here at Southwinds? 
we do not want to make it difficult for anyone to turn to God. And unfortunately, in many churches and in many Christians' lives, obstacles get set up, barriers get erected, really without understanding and knowing sometimes that keep people from seeing the gospel and turning to God. See, we want to eliminate any obstacle we can. We want to set aside any personal preferences we might have, any practices that we are comfortable with. We want to remove any obstacles in our fellowship to the gospel of grace. See, I think about things like this in my preaching. I I don't want to make it difficult for people unfamiliar with Christianity to turn to God because I'm using a lot of terms they don't understand. I think about it for our relationships in the church. I do not want us to be a church that's full of cliques that makes it nearly impossible for people on the outside to penetrate to the inside. I do not want us to make it difficult because we somehow present this artificial facade of righteousness that makes people outside feel like they have to live up to some unreasonable standard in order to be included. And and sometimes we do that. We may not intend to, but sometimes we project this like sanitized, perfect life. You know, families walking to church hand in hand. Everybody's holding a big Bible. Everybody's got a big smile on their face. You know, their teeth are gleaming out, you know. They're saying, hi, brother, hi, sister, and none of those things are wrong. But if you're on the outside, you can look at that and you can find yourself thinking, I'm not like that. I don't belong here. My life is too messed up. See, this is why we keep saying around here, no perfect people allowed. And I just want to let you know, if this is your first time with us today and you're perfect, you should go somewhere else. Because you're just going to make us all uncomfortable, okay? (laughs) See, we do not want to make it difficult for anyone to turn to God. We don't want to make it difficult for people who are drawn here. But when they get here, the facilities are a mess or the kids' classes are overcrowded because we don't have enough volunteers. We're not willing to serve. We don't want to make it ridiculously hard to get into small groups because not enough of us are willing to open our homes or willing to facilitate a group. We don't want to make it difficult for people on the outside to turn to Jesus because they think and somehow we communicate that Christianity is aligned with one form of politics or another or with one form of culture or another. We do not want to make it difficult for people who are turning to God. In verses 20 and 21, James applies some grace. And it's kind of an interesting thing. What does he think the Gentile Christians should do? He says, instead... We should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Now, this may puzzle you at first because it may sort of seem like that they're sneaking works in back through the back door. Because like here's a list, like four things you're supposed to do. But what you should understand as you read the rest of the chapter is that clearly the recipients of this message don't see it this way. We're going to get there in a moment. But verse 30 says that when the Gentiles read this letter and heard these requirements, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. So what is James saying? Well, there's a couple of possibilities. Uh, One of them is that he is saying Gentiles don't need to become Jews to become Christians, but neither do they need to remain pagans. 
In other words, all the things on this list scholars understand have associations with pagan temple worship. And that just may mean that what he is saying to them is this. You do not have to pass through the corridor of Judaism to get to Jesus, but you cannot stay where you were either. You cannot keep worshiping idols. You cannot keep associating with the worship of idols. It also may mean this, and maybe a combination of both of these things. Secondly, it may mean that he is saying to them, like Paul does in some other places, don't flaunt your gospel liberties at the expense of fellowship. Be willing to forego some of those freedoms that you have because you love your brothers. And you're not doing this, James would say, to make yourself acceptable to God on the basis of your works. You're just doing this because you do not want to wound the consciences of your Jewish brothers over some of these matters. These were issues that were very offensive to Jewish believers because they were clearly associated with idol worship. Now, it's kind of an interesting thing to think about because this is an issue in every generation. In every generation, there are going to be some things that some of us feel freedom to do that will wound the consciences of some other people. And that means in every generation, applying the gospel will mean that all of us have to leave something behind in order to fellowship with brothers and sisters at the foot of the cross. See, when we preserve the gospel of God's grace, it shapes more than just our relationship with God, our vertical relationship. It's more than just us feeling secure and loved and welcomed and justified. It starts to shape the culture of the church, the relationships we have with other people. We care more and more and more about servanthood and humility and unity, more than we do about doing what we want to do. See, this is about loving others meeting them where they are, valuing unity. Uh, John Newton, who uh, you know as the author of the most famous hymn in church history, Amazing Grace, once said this, Paul was a reed in non-essentials, an iron pillar in essentials. In other words, he was saying that Paul was like a blade of grass. It just bends, flexible, goes any direction. Paul was gracious and charitable. Others about non-essentials, but when it came to what was the gospel, the essentials, iron pillar. We should learn from that as well. Third truth, always show grace to those who disagree. Now, grace is what we see in verses 22 to 35. It says, Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, two men who were leaders among the brothers. With them, they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Saul, Men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to pause right here and ask you something. I want you to, to kind of enter into this. And this is drawn from those phrases, disturbed you, uh, troubling your minds. These men from Judea disturbed people in Antioch, troubled their minds. And I just want to ask you if you've ever encountered something like this. Have you ever, in your experience as a Christian, seen a believer, like a new believer, just ripped to shreds by legalism? 
Have you ever encountered an introspective believer, someone who thinks a lot, who's kind of internal, and they, they ponder their lives, and they're trying to follow the Lord, and they find themselves suddenly plagued by this sense that God is distant from them, and they, hard, they work as hard as they can, but they never can get it just right, and they know God wants to save them. They know that he wants to show them his kindness and his presence with them, but there's this thing in their life, and as hard as they try, they can't seem to overcome it, and that thing gets between them and Jesus, and at some point, it seems bigger than the cross. Have you ever seen what that does to a soul? See, it's not hard to imagine these teachers. Men from Judea, they're moving through Antioch and they're finding these new believers and they're preaching salvation through circumcision and law keeping. And and these new Gentile believers hear this and they start whispering to one another, I thought I was clean. I thought everything was right with my soul. I thought I was right before a holy God. I thought my idolatry had been washed away, all my sexual immorality. I thought it was gone. Paul didn't say anything about circumcision. Barnabas didn't print out like copies of the Mosaic law. Did I miss something? I mean, Paul told me from now on as a formal former idol worshiper that I could think of myself as a son of Abraham by faith, fully adopted into the family of God. Paul said, I mean, I remember his words. He said, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I remember him saying that nothing could separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus, my Lord. Those words rang in my ears. They were music to my soul. But then these guys come from Jerusalem and maybe Paul was wrong. Word on the street is they come from James, and James is the leader of the mother church, the church in Jerusalem. They call him James the Just. I mean, he's the half-brother of Jesus. Maybe Paul was wrong. Maybe I heard him wrong. Maybe this is right. Maybe the joy I experienced at my baptism was just an emotional high. Maybe I deceived myself into thinking I really belonged to God. Friends, when you think about something like that, it is no wonder that Paul takes the gloves off. Paul has to fight for the gospel of grace. And Paul is chasing wolves here. He is is chasing false teachers. I just want to say to you, there is no greater danger than the danger of supposing that our obedience somehow makes us fit for the grace of God. If you ever hear a message like that from this pulpit, you need to fire the person who's standing behind this pulpit or you need to leave one or the other. Because if the gospel is lost, everything is lost. This is the central truth of Christianity. And this is why Paul fought like he fights. You see, when the gospel of grace is attacked like it is in Acts 15, the appropriate response for Christ's followers is not to turn the other cheek. It is to punch back twice as hard. And that's what Paul did. That's what this council is now confirming. It is about grace, grace alone, grace that saves, grace. Verse 27 says, Therefore we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell.
the men were sent off and went down to Antioch where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the brothers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the brothers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. And so this, uh, this entourage goes back to Antioch. There's Paul and Barnabas. There's the leaders from the Jerusalem church who are there to support them. And they bring this message from the Jerusalem church, from James. And this letter basically has three points in it, this letter that they read to the church. The first uh, point was that the council was rejecting unequivocally this idea that somehow circumcision or law-keeping was a condition for salvation. They say these teachers that came from Judea, they never came from us. Secondly, they say that these men, these delegates that are coming to you in Antioch, they have our full approval and our authorization. And then third, they, they emphasize the spirit-directed unanimous decision that they were not to burden the Gentiles, but only to request that the Gentile believers be considerate of their Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. See, that is why when these, these Gentile believers in Antioch hear this, they rejoice because they now know for sure we are accepted into God's family. We're not required to adopt a Jewish way of life. They had great rejoicing. And I'm just thinking you would rejoice too if your sensitive surgery had been called off, right? Amen? So they were now definitively told they didn't have to become Jews to follow Jesus. And there's just this unity all over these, these verses. Uh, the two leading men, Judas and Silas from Jerusalem, uh, they stay and they encourage the brothers. And when they leave, they are sent back in peace. And then the section concludes this peaceful, joyful display of unity. Paul and Barnabas continuing to proclaim God's word. And they're setting the stage now for the second missionary journey. Uh, which we're going to look at next week. Uh, before we close, I'm going to give you two lessons, uh, one about Christian truth, the other about Christian love. First of all, just be reminded, we must never abandon the gospel of grace. This passage teaches salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Salvation comes apart from works of the law, and we must never bend on this truth. Second, we must lovingly preserve the unity of Christ's body. And we need to remember that, especially when there is a need to fight. There will be times we have to fight, but we should also be willing to abstain from certain freedoms when necessary to maintain peace with others. Christians who feel freedom about certain things, you have a strong conscience. Paul says, in Romans 14, you should never violate the weaker consciences of weaker believers. We should be willing out of humility and love to limit our liberty for the sake of others. There is a way to have a good church fight. And Acts 15 teaches us that. And today, for us, this is the word of the Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Would you bow your heads as we pray together? Father, um, we pray today that we may never give an inch on the gospel, the gospel of your grace. 
Father, may we be willing to fight when grace is threatened. But Father, we pray also that we may always fight with grace, with love and kindness and and graciousness to those we disagree with. More than anything today, Father, we ask that your gospel be honored and your name be exalted. And we pray these things now in the name of your precious Son, Jesus, our Lord and Savior, and all God's people together say, Amen.